Welcome to this week's Rashi Shear, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. And so we resume after the Pesach break. And last time we did the whole first verse of Toledot. And tonight we'll start with the second verse and see how far we go. So the first verse we will just recall said the Eila Toledot Yitzchak. Ben Abraham, Abraham Holid et Yitzchak. These are the generations which Rashi takes to mean the children and the doings of the children of Yitzchak, who was the son of Abraham. Abraham caused Yitzchak to begat. We talked about that last time, why the Rashi says why the Torah needs to apparently repeat itself. Abraham, Yitzchak ben Abraham and Abraham Holid et Yitzchak. But remember that because we will come back to that tonight. So then in Pasuk Kaf, Vayihi Yitzchak ben Arbi'im Shana. Yitzchak was 40 years old when he took Rivka, who was Rivka, but Petuel Ha'arami, the daughter of Petuel the Aramite, meet Padan Aram from the place called Padan Aram, also Achot Lavan, she's also the sister of Lavan Ha'arami the Aramite, lo to him, that's to Yitzchak Leisha, as a wife. So the Torah specifies the age at which Yitzchak got married. It doesn't say that by Abraham. And it doesn't say that by Yaakov. And in fact, it doesn't say it by most people. So it could well be that Rashi is answering why it says Abraham, uh, sorry, Yitzchak was 40. Um, but more precise, I think it's pretty clear that he's actually answering a slightly different question, as we'll see. So Ben Arbi'im Shana, Shaharei, behold. So Rashi does a, a bit of maths here to show that he was 40 but it's dependent on one other fact, which I think is really Rashi's purpose to get to. When Abraham came from Ha-Hamaria, i.e. immediately after the Rivka, um, he was told that Rivka was born. If you look at the end of Parshat Bayera, uh, the story of the Akeda in Perak Kaf Bet, it whole tells us the whole drama of the Akedah, and then Abraham doesn't shecht Yitzchak, and Abraham descends from the mountain in Kafbet uh, Pasuk Yotet, and then immediately after we have this sort of family catch-up, where it says, Abraham was told that uh, Rivka, sorry, that Nachos uh, had children, and it goes down to the granddaughter of Nachor, who is Rivka, and says Rashi that this family news is written immediately after the Akedah because Abraham was told about it immediately after the Akedah. So Abraham was told that Rivka had been born. So Rivka was born at the time of the Akedah. Continues Rashi. And at the time of the Akedah, Rashi says, Yitzchak was 37. So we can already see straight away without going further, but we will go further. But if he was 37 at the Akedah, and Rivka was born when he was 37 at the Akedah, and he marries when he is 40, that means Rivka is now three. Okay, but let's carry on. How do we know that Yitzchak was 37 at the time of the Akedah? Continues Rashi. Shaharei bo baperak metasara. Because at that very time, in that very episode, Sarah died because if you see Rashi on Perak Kaf Gimel Pasuk Aleph, 
which talks about the death of um, Sarah. Uh, Rashi says, no, it's not Pasuk Aleph. Uh, Rashi says that it, ah, in Pasuk, no, it's in Pasuk Bet. That Rashi says, the death of Sarah is put next to the Akeda of Yitzchak. It's because of the news of the Akeda, that Hassan was readied for slaughter. I was nearly slaughtered. Her soul flew away from her. So Rashi, this is not the universal opinion, but Rashi, following the Seder Olam, by the way, which is his Mishnaic Midrashic source for all this, says that we can equate, number one, we've already equated the birth of Rivka with the time of the Akedah. Number two, we can equate the death of Sarah with the time of the Akedah. And then we go back to our Rashi. And from the birth of Yitzchak until the time of the Akedah, when Sarah died, there were 37 years. How do we know that? She was 90 when Yitzchak was born. And she was 127 when she died. How do we know that? Because it says, It says the years of Sarah were 127. So if Yitzchak was born when Sarah was 27, sorry, when, when Sarah was 90, by the time she died at age 127, Yitzchak, continues Rashi, Yitzchak was 37 at the time of Sarah's death. Sarah's death is the same as the time of the Akedah. So Yitzchak was 37 at the Akedah. This is the source for Rashi's position, which is disagreed with by many others, that Yitzchak was 37 at the Akedah. And at the same time, Rivka was born. So what Rashi has done, is equated, as I said, those three events, the Akedah, the birth of Rivka, the death of Sarah, proving that Yitzhak was 37 when Rivka was born. Which means, if the Torah is telling us that he was 40 when he got married, comes the last part of the Rashi, him tin he waited for her until she was fitting to get married, shaloshanim, i.e. three years, unasa'a, and he married her. And that also fits in with the, um, the, the idea that Rivka was three, not only when she got married, but when she did all the watering for the camels, etc. By the way, it's, it's well known that Rashi says Rivka was three at the time. This is where he says it. He doesn't actually say in the story of the camels that she was three, but he says it here. Now, um, I slightly euphemistically translated Rui Labia as ready for marriage. And that's actually what it means. But in the interest of intellectual honesty, it actually means literally fitting for sexual relations. And I, I feel because we're reading these words, I have to just say a little word about the idea of a three-year-old being described in the Gemara as she is regularly, as a as Rui Labia means fitting for sexual intercourse, uh, which of course is quite repugnant to our ears. And I think it's worth, it, it's worth stressing, it's repugnant to the Gemara's ears as well. It is not saying, that a three-year-old, that a husband who marries a three-year-old has relations with her. That's no, nowhere does it say that. But from a halachic point of view, there is a certain significance to the age of three. From a halachic point of view, that's when we say, if he were to have relations with her, it would have a halachic effect. Before the age of three, it would not have a halachic effect. 
And that's related very closely to the idea that if a man marries a person of the age of three, the marriage takes effect. If she's younger than three, it doesn't take effect. So it's, it's a halakhic landmark. It refers to her as Rui Labia, which literally means fitting for relations, but that does not mean that in any way there is a suggestion that relations should take place at the age of three. Um, the Gemara talks about what happens if relations do take place at the age of three. What are the halakhic consequences? I would say the Gemara talks about what happens if somebody gets killed, somebody gets murdered, the halakhic consequences. That doesn't mean the Gemara is proposing that people should get murdered. But the Gemara covers all situations, including what would be the consequences of somebody having relations with a three-year-old. And the Gemara says what those consequences are. And there's a difference in halacha between a two-year-old and a three-year-old. So that, that also works out to be the, only, the earliest time that one could get married. Um, and that's why Ra Yaakov, sorry, Ritzchak waited three years. Um, because if she's born and he's 37, the earliest time he can marry her is three years later, i.e. when he's 40. So the question I think Rashi is answering is why did he wait till he was 40? Um, as I say, we don't know how old other people were when they got married. We, we don't know anything really about Abraham marrying Sarah. Um, Rashi proves that Yaakov was actually much older when he married um, Rachel and Leah, he was 77, but there were circumstances explaining that, and Rashi does explain that. I think the presumption is 40 is pretty old to get married. So why did he wait till he was 40? And Rashi has done all the maths to show that he waited till he was 40 because he had to wait or chose to wait till Rivka was free. Three, Rivka and free. Rivka was his shared, if you like. The whole plan was that he would marry Rivka, but she was 37 years younger, hence he had to wait till he was 40. And that is what Rashi has shown us. So can I just clarify? So in his calculations, is the only part that's not from Shat the fact that Sarah died? Or... Yes, essentially. Okay. Okay. Uh, it, it, so it's not explicit. Yeah. So it's explicit that Yitzchak was born when he was she when he she was 19. That's confirmed. No, there's, there's two other things, I think. Number one is that the so it's the two other points that Rashi is bringing all together as a trio. Number one, that Rivka was born at the time of the Akeda, because you can read that section differently. Mm. Um, it says the Akeda happened. Abraham was told that Rivka was born. Right. So it could be, but it was old news. And it just reached Abraham because the post was slow. But Rashi says, no, it was told to Abraham then because it happened then. And the other point is that Sarah died at the same time as the Akeda. And we can, we can add even that she died as a result of the Akeda. Uh, again, others would say differently. Others would say the, the, the two events didn't take place at the same time. And if you change those events and you get a, you get a totally different age for uh, Yitzchak at the Akkadian, you get a totally different age for Rivka when she marries Yitzchak. Okay. Um, the 40 will be relevant also a little bit later. Uh, we're certainly not going to get there tonight, but it turns out they waited 20 years to have children. And Rashi explains why 20 years. And it's predicated on the fact that Rivka was three when she got mad, but we'll come back to that. Okay, then Rashi, sorry, then the, the Torah says about Rivka, um, She's the daughter of Betuel, she's from Padam Aram, she's the sister of Lavan. And Rashi helpfully asks the question, which he's then going to answer. 
Has it not already been written that she's the daughter of Betuel and the sister of Lavan, and she's from Padam Aram? We know all that. We learned all that in the previous shivcha, But to tell of her praise. Shahaita bat rasha, the achot rasha, umakoma anshe rasha. She was the daughter of a wicked person. That's Batuel. We don't know explicitly that Batuel was wicked, but that's what Rashi says. She was the sister of a wicked person. That's Lavan. Rashi certainly tells us how wicked he was. And her place that she came from was a place of people of wickedness. That's Padanaram. And she did not learn from their deeds. So the Torah repeats what we already know, that she's the daughter of Betuel, she's the sister of Lavan, she's from Padanaram, to tell us how praiseworthy she is. She is, is uh, Rashi doesn't use these words, but she's what we would call today a Balat She comes from a non-from background, but worse than that, she comes from a background of pretty wicked people, and yet she is a Sadekas. Isn't that great? Isn't that her praise? There's an interesting point um, that... We, if we are very precise with Rashi, we'll notice that he says she was the daughter of a wicked person, that's Bat Betuel, the sister of a wicked person, that's Achot Lavan, and she's from a place of wicked people, that's Mipadonaram. But if you look in the Pasuk, it's not in the same order. The Pasuk says Rivka, Bat Betuel, one, Mipadonaram, two, Achot Lavan, three. So the Maharal says very beautifully, there are three influences on a person that lead a person to act in a particular way. One is Yira, one is Ahava, and one is Minhagamoko. Yira means you're afraid of somebody who's pushing you to act in a certain way. Ahava means you love somebody who's encouraging you to act in a certain way. And the third is the minhag of the people around you, not necessarily your very close people, but the people around you, the people who create the, the neighborhood and the uh, social mores, that's an influence on you. Says the Maharal, in that order, the first, the most important influence is you're scared of doing the wrong thing. The second most important influence is you want to impress somebody. And the third is the situation around you, society. So that's the order Rashi puts them in. She says, he says she was a Batuel, so obviously um, she fears her father. She's the Achot Lavan. She loves her brother. And she's Mimokoma Anshe Resha. She's from a place of wicked people. So Rashi puts them in the order that the Maharal says they work on. I think it's actually their way around. The Maharal learns from Rashi that that's the order. And so that's why, according to the Maharal, Rashi changes the order from what's there in the Pasuk. you ask on why the Pasuk is written in the order? Uh, I can't ask that. <laughs> Okay. Um, says Rashi, Mi padan aram. What is meant by padan aram? Now, the problem is we've never heard this place before. We've heard of aram naharayim. Imperakafdalad pasuk yud. So the story of Eliezer, where did he go to find Rivka? He went, So he goes to a place called aram naharayim. But now we're told she's from a place called Padanaram. So I, it seems to me easy to say that Rashi has to tell you where Padanaram is. So he says, Al Shem Shishnei Aram Hayu. Because there were two Arams, Aram Naharayim, but Aram Tsova. 
So they're both places in Mesopotamia, modern day Syria. There's actually more than two Arams. If you look through the Tanakh, there's a few other places called Aram this and Aram that. But these were the two which were in that area. So Kore Oto Padan, it calls it Padan Loshon Semed Bakar. Now, Semed Bakar is a pair of oxen. And uh, Targum, or literally stuck together at Semed, but it's two oxen stuck together pulling a plow. And the Targum, um, uh, it's Targum Yonatan Ben Uziel, which um, it's uh, from Shmuel Aleph. Uh, just by the way, the Targum Yonatan ben Uziel that we have on the Chumash is not from Yonatan ben Uziel. Yonatan ben Uziel was a Tana, a great Tana, um, a Talmud of Hillel. And he wrote this amazing Aramaic translation of Nach. He didn't write one on Chumash. In the Mikro Gedola, you'll find a Targum Yonatan ben Uziel, but that's not him. It's much, much, much later. Uh, it's post-Rashi. Um, but on Tanakh, we have the real Targum Yonatan ben Uziel. So that was a bit of a digression. The point is that the Targum says about the word Semed Bakar, it translates Semed, which we mean two, as in stuck together, by Padan. So Padan um, is uh, Padan Turin. He translates it as Padan Turin. Turin is oxen. So Padan means two in Aramaic. So that's why uh, Padan Aram means the two places called Aram. Okay. Um, it's interesting that Rashi does here. Now, this might be the first time in the Chumash he's done it, but he does it many other times in the Chumash, is he says, look at the Aramaic, and that will give you a clue about the Hebrew. In other words, I'm trying to explain the word Padam, which is a Hebrew word. It's in our text of the Chumash, which is written in Hebrew. And I refer you to an Aramaic source, which has the word Padam, which is the translation for Tzemet, which we know means two. So Padam in Aramaic means two, so Padam in Hebrew means two. The Ibn Ezra, in his introduction to the Chumash, says that Aramaic is basically, and I paraphrase, Hebrew that's got a bit mished. It's got a bit sort of mixed up. Um, so therefore, if you find a word in Aramaic, that might be the same as a Hebrew word, or certainly will shed light on a Hebrew word. Rashi does this all the time. Rashi says that the Hebrew text has got bits of Aramaic. We're about to see another example, which I won't uh, reveal yet. Um, Famously, Rashi on the word totafot, referring to the um, tefillin shalrosh, says it comes from, because it's got four compartments in the tefillin shalrosh, and tot in Kaspi, I'm not quite sure what that language that is, means two, and fot in African means two. That's like an extreme example, but actually Rashi's commentary is full of saying you can learn about the words in the Chumash from other languages. And certainly Aramaic is right up there because it's very close to Hebrew. And then he says, the Yesh Podrin, there are those who explain Padan Aram in the following way, Padan Aram, Kamo Sedei Aram, like the field of Aram. Now, where do you find the phrase field of Aram? You find it in Hoshea, Yud Bet, Pasuk Yud Gimel, but you can also find it in your own Chumashim because it's the opening of the Haftorah of Vayetze. So if you look at the Haftorah of Vayetze, which um, the Sedra Vayetze talks about the travels of Yaakov and the Haftorah of Vayetze. When I say the beginning, I mean the beginning for Ashkenazim because Sephardim and Temanim begin earlier, but the Ashkenazim begin where it says, Vayivrach Yaakov Sedei Aram. Yaakov fled from Sedei Aram. So we're getting confused here because we've got all these Arams going on. We've got Aram Naharayim um, and we've got Aram, Padan Aram. And Rashi says, Padan Aram means two Arams. 
one of which is a Ramna Harayat. So like we can equate what we had last in the previous parak with what we got this week. We're, sorry, in this parak. But what about um, Sadei Aram? Where does that fit? So Rashi says there are those who say that Padan Aram is the same as Sadei Aram. How do we know? What's the connection between Padam and Sadei, meaning field? Shabaloshan Yishmael Korin Lesadei Padan. Because in the language of Yishmael, i.e. Arabic, they call a field Padan. Um, and the Ibn Ezra, having said that Aramaic is like Hebrew, it's got a bit mished. He says Arabic is also like Hebrew, it's got a bit mished. These are all, of course, all Semitic languages. So we understand it's not terribly surprising that there is confluence between the three. Um, and Rashi less often quotes Arabic, but he does in a few places. I can't give you a list, but in a few places, he says you can learn what the Hebrew word means from understanding the Arabic. So Rashi's left you with two suggestions. Padan Aram either means two Arams, referring to Aram Naharayim and Aram Sova, or Padan Aram means Sadei Aram. Um, this isn't really quite a classic of Rashi bringing two opinions. You could say that Rashi sort of opened the dictionary and giving you various options, the etymology of the word, or you could say, yes, it is a classic Rashi giving us two opinions, in which case we have to know why do we need two opinions? And perhaps the, the first one is not quite satisfactory because um, Rivka didn't come from two places. She only came from one place. So it doesn't really make sense to say Padan Aram means two. She's from Padan Aram, which is the two different Arams, because she's only from one of them. In fact, we know which one she's from. She's from Aram Naharayim. Um, or maybe the problem with the second opinion is that Arabic is a little bit too far to go to shed light on the words in our text. Um, we're a bit safer with the Aramaic, which makes Padan mean two, rather than to go all the way to the Arabic, which makes Padan mean field. So that's why perhaps there are imperfections with both explanations. Okay, that takes us to Pasuk Kaf Aleph. Vayetar Yitzchak Lahashem. So we don't quite know what Yetar means. It's not a common word. Rashi's going to say a lot on it, but it's something to do with davening. Yitzchak, let's just as a working title, translates it as Yitzchak daven to Hashem. Lenocha ishto. Um, we're not sure what nocha means. So I'm going to leave that one untranslated. Ki akara hi, because she was barren. They had no children. Um, uh, we're going to know, I said, we're, the age of 40, when he got married, is relevant to the fact that um, she had her children, Yitzchak, sorry, Yaakov and Esau, uh, as you can see in Pasuk Kafavav, when he was 60. So they waited 20 years for the children. So I'll tell you now what Rashi says there. Why did they wait 20 years? They waited 10 years until she was able to have children, which according to Rashi would be 10 years after she was three, i.e. when she's 13, which makes sense. Yeah, it does. Um, and then she wait, they waited another 10 years because, and that confirmed that she was barren and they needed to double. Just like Abraham, um, after 10 years of no children with Sarah, Abraham didn't. Well, he probably did, but what he did was something different. He took Hagar as a, as a surrogate wife. Um, um, but uh, Yitzchak uh, didn't want to do that. He had a different strategy. We'll talk about that much later. But the point is, the year, uh, by the time he gets to 60, they've had 10 years before Rivka could have children, and then 10 years when she didn't have children. And that's why they knew she was a Kara, she was barren, and that's why it was time to dump. 
And then the passage continues, the Yeter Lo Hashem, which as we will see means Hashem responded to his prayers. The Tahar Rivka Ishto, and Rivka, his wife, conceived. Okay, so we need to know what Vayetar means, says Rashi. Vayetar, Hirba, Vehiptir, Betifila. So it's two things relating to Tefila. Hirba, which means there was a lot, he multiplied. Vehiptir, which is translated in different ways, but he added urgency or impressed. So says Rashi, it's, it's both of those together. Um, now, bear that in mind, because we've got a, uh, quite a, it's quite an involved Rashi here, and he brings three different examples of the use of that word elsewhere in the Chumash, in the Tanakh, um, and hopefully by the time we finish, we all get back and we'll understand why he says, he multiplied and he was um, added urgency. And the reason I'm saying this is because we do know elsewhere that atar basically means a heap of lots of stuff. So hirba, he multiplied, that sort of um, not unimaginable based on what we know about the word. But hivtsir, he seems to have added in. Anyway, so what that means is, what's going on? Yitzchak's davening, a lot and with urgency. Okay, and then we have the word ater lo. Now, the grammar is a little bit hard, but it means in the passive, he was prayed to a lot. So who's he when lo? It's Hashem. So Hashem responds low to him. We'll talk about why it's to him and not to her a little bit later. So what does that mean? He was pazer. He was um, uh, um, made. He was responding to the urgency, Vanit Payes, and he was appeased, Vanit Pata, and he was persuaded. So those were referred to Hashem, Lo, to him, to Yitzchak. So we've explained what the Yetar, uh, yetar what he did, means, and we've explained what the Yetar, what Hashem did, means. Now Rashi says, but Omer Ani. I, Rashi, say, call Loshon Atar, Loshon Havtsara, Viribuihu. All expression of Atar, wherever you find it in the, in the Tanakh, is an expression of these two things. Interesting, he's changed the order, I'm not quite sure why. Havtsara, Viribui, making urgent and multiplying. Vachain. So, in order to prove his understanding of the word, he brings three examples from the Tanakh. Um, and the first is Atar Anan HaKatoret, from uh, Yechezkel. The smoke of the Katoret, Atar, means there was a lot of, and it was uh, extra special. It was extra infused. Uh, I'm trying to make Patsara match the idea of smoke, but it was not just a lot of smoke. It was like special, impressive smoke. Marbit Aliyat HaAshan, the elevation of the, this is Rashi's words explaining the passage, the elevation of the smoke was multiplied. You have made lots of your words on me and you've made them pressing on me. Uh, same root, atar, referring to words that are used to um, persuade me. And another example, and this one comes from Mishle, the na'atarot Nishikot Soneh. So Na'atarot is the same word that we keep trying to explain, something to do with lots of. 
kisses of the enemy. So there were lots of kisses of the enemy. Says Rashi, domot lemirubot v'heinam lemasa. It's like there's a lot of them and they become a burden. Now, as I promised, it's that last one, which I think, or I, those that I've read, suggest is the key to Rashi's understanding. So the, the, the problem that I think is being answered here is we understand that Ya'atar means something to do with harbeh, but Vihivtsir, something to do with making urgent, where does that come from? So that Pasuk in Mishle says that you can get something of which there's a lot of it, and it becomes burdensome. In the cases of kisses of the enemy, you have to look at the Pasuk to see the exact context, but kisses of the enemy obviously are like, not good. They, they might feel nice, but they're not really good. So, and if there's a lot of them, they become a burden. So it's something whereby it's not just that there's a lot, but there's a lot with extra pressure. And it's that that leads Rashi to understand this root, ayin tafresh, means a combination of multiplicity and the extra pressure, the extra urgency. And in the case of the na'atarot, nishikot soner, from Mishle, it becomes not just as a lot of it, but the pressure, says Rashi, or says the Pasuk, sorry, v'hinam lamasa. No, sorry, Rashi says, v'hinam lamasa. It's they that became a burden. So it seems that Rashi shows in different contexts how this root is used to mean something that's not just multiply, but multiply with pressure. And then he says, uh, and depending on, you can read this word, depending on how your text of Rashi transliterates from the French, engrissement, blaz. Um, something to do with, it's not, well, according to uh, Rashi, to Art Scroll, I think, it sounds like the word increase in English, but it's not. It's a different French root. Um, I think engrossing, um, like, which is like, has the same meaning of increasing, but it's not the same root. Okay, that was all a bit of grammar and a bit of etymology. Now let's go to Lenocha Ishto. What does it mean when it says, uh, Now, I think what Rashi's problem is here is, it would be nice to say that it meant Yitzchak davened on behalf of his wife. Yitzchak davened for the sake of his wife. The problem is, that's not what Nocha means, at least according to Rashi. It doesn't mean on behalf of, we've got a very good Hebrew word, which means on behalf of, which is ba'ad, and lenocha doesn't mean that. It means opposite, as Rashi says. He davened, Rashi understands it to mean opposite his wife. So what does it mean, he davened opposite his wife? Zer omed bezavit zu umit palel, vezo omedet bezavit zu umit palelet. This one, I masculine, Yitzchak, davened, stood in this corner and davened, and this one stood in that corner and davened. And that's Lenocha Ishto, opposite his wife. So first of all, by the way, it, it, the way Rashi has it, it's both of them are davening, although it doesn't say that in the person. I think Rashi assumes that, well, maybe it's because of what's coming next, or maybe it's because um, it's obvious that if Yitzchak's got something to daven for, Rivka's also something to daven for, and they both daven. So what's Lenocha Ishto? It's opposite. So it's interesting, there are different opinions about what the physical arrangement of the room was. So um, what is unlikely is that they were facing each other, because you don't face a person when you daven, um, even though it says opposite. So, and Rashi doesn't say they were facing each other. Um, so either, um, well, 
the next problem is we generally face in the same direction. When we daven, we face Yerushalayim. So if, maybe it's a little bit anachronistic to say they had to daven facing Yerushalayim, wherever they were living, north or south, or probably south of Israel, um, so they would be facing north to get to Yerushalayim. So one suggestion is that, and those on the podcast can't see what I'm demonstrating, but they were facing the same direction, uh, standing, as it were, next to each other, or in the same direction in corners of the room, which were the two corners going in the same direction, like this corner and this corner, as opposed to the two diagonal corners. However, others want to say, it makes more sense to say they were davening in diagonal corners. Uh, and there's a very nice idea that what else do we know? What um, rectangular object was um, used with the two diagonal corners being particularly focused on? I'm deliberately making it vague and perhaps making it uh, hard to understand what I'm talking about. The answer is the Mizbeach. So when you offer a korban on the Mizbeach, depending on the nature of the korban, either the blood is sprinkled on all four sides, or in the case of, for instance, an Ola, the blood is sprinkled on the two corners, two diagonal corners. So if you sprinkle blood, sprinkle blood, sprinkle blood on one diagonal corner, and you sprinkle blood on the other diagonal corner, you've actually covered all four sides. So some want to say, uh, I, I think it's a bit of a stretch, but it's, it's a beautiful idea that uh, Yitzchak stood in one corner, Rivka stood in the other diagonal corner, and that's how they um, connected to that. That's how they covered all four sides. Okay, then we get to the Yetar Loh. And again, Rashi helpfully gives us the question, although not in all texts, by the way, um, I've got the next three words are Loh. Below la, to him and not to her. Have you got that? After Bayatello. Okay. Yes. Yes. You got it. Yeah. Um, the problem is Rashi basically says the same three words at the end of this little paragraph as well, which is why, and I think in the art scroll it's in curly brackets to show that it's not in all editions. Um, it probably makes a more sense for it not to be there because it wouldn't be repeated at the beginning and the end. But never mind. Rashi is talking about the fact that it says Hashem responded to him and not to her. Now, Rashi having said in the previous section that both of them were davening, then creates the question why Yitzchak is answered and not Rivka. And the answer is, says Rashi, She'ein doma tefillah tzaddik ben tzaddik le tzaddik ben rasha. The prayer of a tzaddik son of tzaddik is not the same as the prayer of a tzaddik son of rasha. Lefikha, and therefore, lo, below la. He was answered and not her. Yitzchak is the son of Avram Avinu. Rivka is the daughter of Betuel. Their fathers are on a very different madrega, very different level. So when Yitzchak davens, his tefillah is the tefillah of a tzaddik ben tzaddik. When Rivka davens, her tefillah is the tefillah of a tzaddik bat Russia. Now, at this point, you might say, hang on. Didn't Rashi say in the previous verse what a great Sadekes Rivka was? Precisely because she grew up in a wicked family amongst wicked people. So Rashi obviously is sensitive to what might look like a contradiction, but it isn't. And Rashi is very precise. He doesn't say that Yitzchak is a better person and that's why his prayer is received. He doesn't say that Rivka has to pay the penalty for having grown up in a non-from home, and that's why her prayer is not received. No, 
Rashi says the tefillah itself. There's a qualitative difference between the tefillah of a tzaddik ben tzaddik and the tefillah of a tzaddik bat rasha. Not that the person is a better person or a worse person, but their tefillah has a different quality. And there are lots of uh, approaches to this, but the simple one, which I think is the most obvious one, is there is something called zuchut avot, the merit of one's ancestors. And this um, manifests itself at one particular moment, in maybe, maybe others, but certainly in one particular moment. And that is when one does. And when one davens, one brings into the tefillah the zuchut avot. And if you don't have so much chutavot, because your avot was not people like Avraham Avinu, then your tefillah is not quite as powerful. And we see that in many ideas. Actually, with a halachic point that comes straight out of this, that uh, the, the, uh, the post can talk about the need for Rosh Hashanah to find the best possible shlech tzibah to lead the davening. And uh, there's a slight, there's, there's, it's not quite clear cut because... There are uh, questions about this, but basically we find the sources say, look for a tzaddik ben tzaddik. But by the way, if uh, a tzaddik ben Russia is much better in many other ways than go for the tzaddik ben Russia. But if, if all other things being equal, there is an advantage to have a tzaddik ben tzaddik lead the tefillah of the congregation on the Yemei Hadin on days like Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Because the tefillah is backed by the zchutavot, by the merit of the ancestors, and therefore, um, Yitzchak's tefillah was more powerful than Rivka's tefillah, and that explains why it says the Yeater Lo, not the Yeater La. Right. So far, so good. But then it gets a bit tricky for Rivka because Pasukaf Bet, the Yitrotsetsu Habanim Bekirba. The boys did something, the Yitrotsetsu inside her, the Tomer, and she said, Im kein lama anochi. Now, we'll get to Rashi and understand what these words are, but the simple literal meaning is, if so, why this I? Which doesn't make a lot of sense. But she did something as a consequence. But Taylor, she went, lidrosh et Hashem, to seek Hashem. And then Hashem said something to her. So, the yidrotsetsu habanim bekirba is some sort of problem which requires her to go and find a solution. So Rashi says on the word al We're forced to say that this verse cries out, expound me. Because it was unclear, it was not explicit. What is this Ratsitsa? So I think there's two problems. One is, what does the word Ratsitsa mean? Um, maybe three problems. Second problem is, so what exactly was going on? And the third problem is, what was the Ratsitsa that was going on that caused her the problem that she needed to go to ask Hashem? So Rashi says, in a way that he sometimes does, but rarely, he says, this pastor is crying out for an explanation. So what is this Ratsitsa? The katab, and it writes, sorry, in Kain Lamaza Anochi. As I said, this Ratsitsa leads on to her saying, in Kain Lamaza Anochi, whatever that means, but it means something, and we have to explain it. So, Rabotenu Darashuhu, our rabbis expounded it. Lashon Ritsa, it means Ritsa, 
which means ruts is to run. So it's expression of running. Now, by the way, um, it's only got one sadi in Ritsa, and our plus our word, the Yitratsatu, has got two. Now, that may not be so terrible because we often find with two letter roots, or you might want to say it's a three letter root with a vav in the middle, um, when the vav falls down, you're just left with two letters that the second letter is doubled. Right now, I can't think of an example, but there are many. So maybe it's not a big deal that Rage Sadi becomes Rage Sadi Sadi under some grammatical forms. Or maybe it is a big deal, which we'll remind ourselves of later. So Lashon Ritsa, it's an expression of running. Now, by the way, Rabotenu Darshuhu means it's Midrashic. Um, this may or may not be a what happened, but it's certainly not shut. But it explains, it answers our questions. What is meant by Yidratasu and why does that lead to her going to seek Hashem? So what is the Ritsa? What does it mean there was running? So as is, I think, very well known, Rashi explains as follows. When she would pass by the gates of Torah, shall shame the ever of the academy of shame and ever. Now, uh, just to pause for a moment. So in that time, there were not yeshivot on every street corner, which is now how we're blessed, certainly in Israel. More people learning Torah in Israel than ever before in history. That's a thought for Yom Hatzmot. Um, but in those days, there was one yeshiva, but the Midrash talks about quite a lot, of Shem and Eva. Shem was the son of Noah. Eva was his great-grandson. And they set up a yeshiva, which is mentioned in the Midrash from time to time. What did they learn there? I don't know. Who were the students? I don't know. These questions are not answered, at least not that I know of. But there was a yeshiva. And where was it? Well, apparently it was nearby where Yitzchak and Rivka were, li were living because Rivka would pass the gates from time to time. So she passes the place of this yeshiva. Yaakov ratz umafarkes letzait. Yaakov ran, that's the ritza, and struggled to get out. Overet al pitche avodazara. She passed by the gates of an avodazara, of an idolatrous place. Esav, mafarkes, let's say it. Esav struggled to get out. Now, just pause for a minute. Um, the first thing to say is, as I think the Maharal says, um, it cannot mean that the fetus was making a choice to go this way or the other fetus was making a choice to go that way because um, uh, the Yetzirah Hara doesn't, uh, or the Yetzirah Tov for that matter, does not enter into somebody, at least not until they're born, maybe even later. Um, Rashi says in by the Mabal that the Yetzirah Hara comes first and the Yetzirah Tov comes later, but certainly... There's no Yetzirah, Yetzirah in the womb. So the Maharal says what this means is there's, there's an intrinsic nature, like a, an attractive force of likes attract and opposites repel. So there's some attractive force between Torah and Yaakov Avinu, and between Avodah Zarah and Esau Avinu. So this would have caused the Ritza, the running from within her, and this would have given her great discomfort. Now, by the way, I'm getting a little bit out of order. It could be that she's concerned that she's got a lot of, of, of pregnancy pains. Uh, in her case, it's particularly acute because she's got these babies that are struggling to get out whenever she goes this way or whenever goes that way. Or more likely, although Russia doesn't say it explicitly, but more likely the problem is the inconsistency that uh, she doesn't understand this, this embryo within her. Is it being drawn after Torah? Is it being drawn after Avodah Zarah? She doesn't get it. And that's why the answer, which we're not going to get to tonight, 
But the answer comes in the next passage. The first thing that Hashem says to her when she inquires is, Shnei goyim There are two nations in your womb. So either that explains the struggles in general, or it explains the inconsistency. At this point, I will tell the joke, which I think there's many a true word in jest, that a woman in our times uh, is pregnant. And when she passes the Bet Midrash, she feels the baby trying to get out. And when she passes the cinema, she feels the baby trying to get out. And she goes to the Rav and says, what is this? Have I got a Yankov and Esau? And he says, no, you've just got one baby, but it's modern Orthodox. In other words, it's the inconsistency that Rivka was bothered by. But then Rashi says, Devar Acher, another explanation, Mitrotzitzim Zerim Zer. They were arguing with each other or literally smashing each other. Rotzitz is to break. Umarivim, and they were arguing, Benachalat Shnei Olamim, Olamot, sorry, with the inheritance of the two worlds. So there's a few things to say. First of all, this is a second explanation. We'll have to try and understand why Rashi brings a second explanation. The next thing is, and the first explanation, the word comes from the root to run. In the second explanation, it comes from to smash. What were they smashing? They were smashing each other because they were arguing about the inheritance of the two worlds. Now, Rashi is very brief at this point. What does it mean, the inheritance of the two worlds? So some want to say <clears throat> that Yaakov said, I have no interest in Olam Hazer. I feel connected to Olam Haba. Esau said, I have no interest in Olam Haba. I want all the instant gratification and the physicality of Olam Hazer. And that's what they were arguing about. Others want to say, <clears throat> that's not the point, that Yaakov was saying that I want to do mitzvahs in Olam Hazer and receive the schar in Olam Haba. But you, Mr. Esau, have no place in Olam Haba. And the reason this is interesting and, and the different views about what was this argument about the two worlds, uh, I would like to suggest um, really informs how we see what Yitzhak was trying to do when he gave blessings well, to Esau. Um, Yitzhak, uh, Yaakov dressed up as Esau late, much later on in the Pasha, and gets the blessing which Yitzchak designated for Esau. Uh, and there's lots and lots of uh, discussion, huge amounts of discussion, of course, about what Yitzchak's plan was. Did he just get it wrong? Did he think that Esau was worthy of a bracha and, Yitzchak, uh, and, and Yaakov was not, or Yaakov didn't need a bracha? It's worth noting that at the very end of the parasha, um, sorry, let me go back to stage. Uh, when Esau finds out <coughs> that Yitzchak has given the bracha to Yaakov, he gets very upset. And he says to his father, Yaakov, uh, Yitzchak, have you got one bracha left for me? And Yitzchak says, I'm sorry, mate. I've given them all to Yaakov. And then at the very, very, very end of the parasha, Yaakov comes in dressed as Yaakov, and Yitzchak gives him a bracha, the birchat Avraham, the blessing of Avraham. So I don't want to give too much away. So before we get to the whole story of the brachot, but it seems to me and it seems to others, that Yitzchak knew all along that Yaakov was destined for the bracha of the Birchat Abraham, if you like, the spiritual bracha, but he wanted to give a physical bracha to Esau. And maybe that was not wise. Maybe he should have given deliberately, I mean, knowingly, the bracha of both the physical world and the spiritual world to Yaakov. And, and I'm just sort of touching on a debate about how should ideally the arrangement of Yaakov and Esau have worked out. Maybe Yitzchak's idea 
was that Yaakov should have Olam Haba and Esau should have Olam Hazer and there'd be a good partnership. But Rivka, who frustrated that plan, thought that no, Yaakov needs Olam Hazer as well as Olam Haba. Now, what is all this got to do with what we're reading here? It's exactly what we're reading here. They were arguing about the inheritance of the two worlds. And, and I would suggest there's a direct line from that comment of Rashi to the debate between Yitzchak and Rivka about how to bless the children of Esau and Yaakov and set them up for some sort of successful partnership. Now, why does Rashi bring two explanations? So a simple approach is to say that the first explanation doesn't deal with the second study. The first explanation uh, to say that the word, the Yitzchak comes from the word Ritzah, doesn't really work because is it one study or two studies? The problem of the second explanation is the word Bekirba. The Pasuk says, The sons did something inside her. And according to the first explanation, that works out fine. They were stuck together and they were pulling in different directions, but they couldn't get out. They tried to get out, but they couldn't get out. They were Bekirba. They were within her. And that was precisely her problem. But all this was going on inside her. According to the second explanation, they were having a debate, they were having an argument, but the fact that they were stuck together inside her actually is irrelevant. So how does the second explanation fit in with the fact that the Yitratsu Habanim Bakirba? So that, that's one answer to given to why Rashi needs two explanations. And then continues Rashi, Vatome Imkain. She said, if so, she went on to say Lamazat Anochi, but Rashi says, Imkain. If so, if so what? If what so? If it's so great, the pain of pregnancy. If the pain of pregnancy is so great, then Why? Whatever means. What is Rashi excluding? What Rashi is excluding is Imkain, um, if so, does not refer directly to the struggling of the two boys. It can't be, she's saying, if the two boys are struggling, then Lamaza Anochi, because she doesn't know the two boys are struggling. She doesn't know what's going on, because that's why she needs answers. And in the next verse, she gets answers, but until she's got the answers, she doesn't know. We know, but she doesn't know that. So it can't mean that she says, if so, I will go and ask Hashem. So what is it that she says, if so? Says Rashi, if so, all she knows is that she's in a lot of pain. And because she's in a lot of pain, then she says, Lama ze anochi. And as I've already hinted, the words Lama ze anochi don't make much sense. Why this I? So we can have a simple approach to this line of Rashi. He has to explain what the words mean. Lama ze anochi, and she explains, al Why did I? Desire and daven for pregnancy. Lama zeh anochi. Why this pregnancy? Anochi did I daven for it? Um, now, someone to say she's sounding like any person, and particularly any woman. Uh, it is normal. It is very normal for women to want to have children and to daven and to yearn for children. So she's saying, why did I do that? Or why does anyone do that? Uh, again, sorry. I think part of what I'm talking about now is you can read it in that she knew her pregnancy was uniquely painful. 
in which case she says, why did I dumb to get pregnant? And this is my lot. Or she didn't know her pregnancy was uniquely painful. And she's saying, why does anyone daven for pregnancy? Because it's really much more painful than I ever expected. Okay. But what did she do as a result? The Telech Lidrosh. And Rashi splits it up. The Telech Lidrosh and Lidrosh et Hashem as two separate comments. The Telech Lidrosh, she went to inquire. Levet Midrashol Shel Shem. And some, I've got a note that says, the Ever. So some texts say she went to the yeshiva of Shem, and some say she went to the yeshiva of Shem and Ever. Let me just deal with that last bit. So it's easy to say Shem the Ever, because that was how the yeshiva was always known. Or perhaps if it says Shem, the fact is that Shem was the senior partner. He was older, obviously, and you can do the math, and he was still alive. He didn't die until Yaakov and Esau were 50 years old. So when Yaakov and Esau are minus one year old, then he's certainly still alive. And you could say she went to ask the Shiva of Shem, um, and a minute Shem will be mentioned again, because he, in between Shem and Eber, Shem is much more dominant. Now, um, Lidrosh, uh, uh, okay, next, I'll read the next comment of Rashi. On the words Lidrosh et Hashem, she went to seek Hashem, she yagid, yagid lo, la, sorry, yagid la, that he will tell her what will be in the end. Now, we can put these two comments together. Lidrosh et Hashem is often understood, and the Ramban understands this, by the way, as to daven. She went to daven. But Rashi doesn't accept that. And the reason I think he doesn't accept it is because of a telech. She went, she walked. If she needs a daven, she can do it anywhere. She can do it standing in one corner while her husband stands in the other corner. She doesn't need to go somewhere. So when she needs to go somewhere, says Rashi, she needs to ask somebody to do something for her. And it can't be she asks somebody to dub for her. That's not how it works. We dub for ourselves. So she needs to ask somebody who's got a hotline to Hashem to give her an answer. And therefore, Rashi needs to explain what the question is. So Rashi put, put those two points together, the tailor, she went. So Rashi understands that a telech literally, uh, you know, in English we say, you go and do something. But in Hebrew, go and do something, at least the way Rashi understands it, must mean go, like try move from place A to place B in order to do something. So go, she has to go somewhere. So where did she go? So she went to the Midrash of Shem, brackets, or Shem the Eva. And why did she go to Shem to, uh, when she could have davened at home? It must mean that she needs something more than just davening. She, when it says Lidrosha Hashem, she's seeking Hashem. She's seeking an answer to a question, which Shem will get for her. Um, and so the question that Rashi spells out for us is what's going to happen? And I will just start the next passage because there's a lot in the next passage. I just want to read the first comment. Vayoma Hashem la. Hashem said to her, says Rashi, al yadei shaliach, through means of a messenger. It was said to Shem through Ruach HaKodesh, and Shem then report, repeated it to her. So that comment of Rashi I wanted to include because it links with the other two. All these three last comments all fit together. In my, my understanding, is all predicated on the Kalech. She goes somewhere. because Why does she have to go somewhere? Because she has a question which she can't answer. So where does she go? She goes to someone who will answer the question. How will they answer the question? through their Ruach HaKodesh. They will be like in a mystery from Hashem. 
And who will that person be? Well, who's the number one person? Well, actually, you could argue there's two other candidates. Why didn't she ask Abraham? Why didn't she ask Yitzhak? She went outside the family. Well, actually, the great ancestor of the same family, but she went outside the immediate family. So someone to say she's worried that the answer will be you are suffering because of some sin on your part. And she doesn't want to discuss that in the family or she doesn't want to worry Yitzhak about how she's feeling. Um, and if she goes to Abraham, then Yitzhak will find out. So she goes to Shem. Um, and that's why Rashi says she goes to the yeshiva of Shem. And maybe that explains why it's Shem and not Shem and ever. And it's Shem who then gives her the answer. What the answer is, and yet Hashem, we will see next week. There's a cliffhanger for you. Okay. Thank you, Rabbi. Cool.